the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast. Picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanika. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be a Better Investor podcast. It's a podcast where I speak to professional investors about their investment journeys. We discuss how they approach investments and how it has changed over the years. And we also discuss what they regard as their best and worst investments ever. And the idea is to find those golden nuggets of wisdom from their perspectives and experiences to assist amateur retail investors to become better investors. My guest today is Anthea Gardner. She's the managing partner at Cartesian Capital. Cartesian is a boutique asset manager, which currently has a big focus on fixed income funds. Anthea has been in the business for nearly 20 years, and she's also a regular commentator on various MoneyWeb radio shows. Anthea, thank you so much for joining me. Let's start with your investment journey. Where did you grow up, and when did you decide you wanted a career in asset management? Hi, Rick. It's so good to be in touch and chatting. So I grew up in Cape Town and I thought I was going to be a teacher and that didn't happen because my father knew that I didn't have the patience for it. So the weird thing about how I got into investing when I was growing up and despite, by the way, my father being a bank manager, I did not know that the stock market even existed. But what he did teach me, and I don't know if you remember, he was at Standard Bank and they used to have these autobank cards for juniors and I had those. And so I got to learn about money. So what I had learned was that when I started working, I had to invest or I had to buy policies and insurance and all that. So, so I did that. How old were you then? So that was just after varsity. So it must have been early 20s. So when did you decide you wanted a career in investments and in asset management? Well, this is kind of what happened. It's kind of weird, kind of roundabout way that it happened. So I saw a financial planner from Old Mutual. He sold me these endowment policies. Well, I had investments, but I had no idea what was in them. And um, when Old Mutual demutualized, I took the share options. And I remember having long discussions with my father over email, asking the value of these things should be and should I buy them? Should I sell them? And, you know, just that kind of quick. But neither of us, to be honest, had any idea about how to value shares. And then when kind of this happened, I actually was working in London at the time for a wine company whose owners were traders with a company called Tradition. And my flatmate was an analyst for a brokerage company. And so between them, I kind of asked them, what do you think? And what is this all about? And they basically informed me <laughs> about what the stock market is all about and how to go about buying shares. And so, Rake, I mean, this was pretty much at the height of the dot-com bubble. And um, working for a wine company, they sent me off to San Francisco to do some work. Nice, happy coincidence. Lots of new dot-com listings as I was getting interested in the stock market. And while I was there, I remember I, I didn't have a car in San Francisco. I was just there on a kind of a temporary basis. And having to buy groceries and walking up those steep streets in San Francisco, I was like, this is, this is not on. But then there was a company that came to the market called Webvan. And that for me was a no-brainer. Like you just had to buy Webvan shares. And at the same time, like I love bookstores. I love the feel and smell of a book. There was another company that was offering you to buy books online. I mean, that was just the most ridiculous thing that I'd ever heard of. Is it maybe perhaps Amazon? Exactly. <laughs> 
So I thought Amazon was just rubbish. Like nobody needed those shares. Webvan, needless to say, went bust. And you know the Amazon story. So so kind of that was my probably my just interesting foray into the stock market. But so few people at that age actually make the link. Well, most people know they need to save. And uh, you got an endowment. Many other people starting out uh, their professional journeys contribute towards a pension fund or an RA. But they also don't know what is in there. They don't know what the underlying investments are. So why did you take a particular interest to see exactly where your money was invested in? Well, Rake, I bought the endowment kind of in my early 20s. And then when I was in London, this was like, I don't know, maybe six years later. So it wasn't that I bought the endowment or the investment and thought, oh, I must see what's in it. It was when Old Mutual demutualized and they offered us shares that I kind of thought, oh, what does this even mean? Yeah, I think it's just a confluence of people around me at the time that made me interested. And the fact, as I said, that it was a in the dot-com era and everyone was talking about it, right? Everyone was making millions from the stock market. So what was the very, very first share you bought? Well, I guess it was old mutual. If no, you, no, if you, you got those like for free. That, no, tell us the yes, one exactly. you money from your own pocket. <laughs> Rake, I'm afraid I actually can't remember because at that time my flatmate was a, a stockbroker, an analyst at a stockbroking firm, and I said, "Please open a trading account for me and let's buy some shares." And he said, "Yeah, okay, let's kind of do a few shares." And I honestly cannot remember what was in that portfolio, but I do remember that kind of. You know, all those dot-com companies were so exciting at the time. I don't think I made any money from them. I can remember that time as well. You know, you, you could have bought any share and you would have made money, especially late 1990s. So you became interested in the stock market. You had some skin in the game. When did you decide you wanted to make it your career? Pretty much the next year, actually, because my boss at the wine company was a trader and we were sitting around one afternoon chatting what we used to call wine o'clock, by the way. And he kind of somehow said to me, you seem quite interested in this and you would make such a good trader. Why don't you do that? Because at the wine company, I was basically helping him raise funds and doing business development. And I was like, this is not for me. And he said, well, you know, have you thought of being a trader? So, of course, I had to go and look up what a trader meant and how it was. (laughs) And actually, pretty much six months later, having kind of read all the books and gotten interested in the few shares, the little portfolio that never made money, in the few shares, I actually came back to South Africa because I couldn't get a job in London as a trader or an investment analyst or anything. And, And I had only done a social science degree. So I had to come back and study again. So I did that. That was kind of... Uh, late 20s. Yeah, that was in my late 20s. And and that kind of kick-started the whole thing. What did you study? So I did a financial management course, and then I did all my RE exams, Mm -hmm. and then I did an MBA. Okay. But were you at that stage already dead set on becoming a professional investor? Well, I actually didn't even still really know exactly where, but I knew I needed to work in the stock market. And, and even that was kind of a crazy story because I was driving from uh, lectures one day and I heard a Standard Bank market commentator who I'm still in touch with today, actually. And I literally phoned him up the next day and said, hi, Mark, you don't know me. My name's Anthea. I need to work in your industry. And he was doing a commentary on the markets. I kind of said, well, I'm busy studying. I've done my RE. Can I come and see you? I did. He didn't have a job for me, but he passed me on to a friend who was working at HSBC and who did have a position for a sales trader, went into the interview, 
you know, like just the, not still not sure how exactly I got the job, but I did as a sales trader at HSBC. And that's where I started. And and I think the initial excitement of being in a dealing room and just constant trading kind of really just got me hooked. But I, I also thought that it wasn't enough for me. I, I really wanted to know how to analyze companies and bonds, kind of that was my thing. And, and derivatives actually ended up being my real passion, um, which I ended up going to R&B and doing. So yeah, so that was the whole kind of start of this crazy world we work in. Did you also continue to invest or build up a portfolio, a personal portfolio during this time? Yes, I did, but I didn't put that much emphasis on it because, you know, when you're working in big banks and, and my pedigree, if you want to call it, that is really HSBC, Rand Merchant Bank, uh, Morgan Stanley, and then eventually the African Development Bank. There's so much red tape when you have to trade your own shares. You, you know, you have to go through compliance and get it approved. And so I just had a little portfolio of shares locally, which I, I, I had bought and kind of left, really didn't bother about it you know and and of course you know the impact of compounding so that grew a little bit but it started with a little so maybe it grew to a little bit more you then later in life started cartesian capital your own boutique asset management firm tell us about your approach there and whether there was a different investment approach in your professional capacity as opposed to your personal capacity Oh, 100%. Yes, absolutely. So in my personal capacity, I really felt like I could take the risk and buy shares kind of without worrying too much about the analysis and a mandate and all that sort of thing. And so my background, as I said, at RMB and Morgan Stanley was in derivatives. And so I, I don't think I'm risk averse. I, I think it's more that I'm risk aware and I understand risk. And so at Cartesian, one of the things I try to do is ensure that when a client gives me a mandate, that I follow that mandate quite strictly and ensure that the client gets what they want. So if they want a money market that just yields and increases a little bit every month where capital preservation is key, then that's what they get. And, you know, they don't pay me for taking risks in MTN, which is so volatile, for example. And if they give us an equity mandate, then, you know, we have to explain to the client that there is more risk, more volatility, and understand that sometimes when you want to withdraw, that that portfolio might be down, as, as we have done a lot this year, in fact. But and I like it always that. happens that way, doesn't it? But I like that. There's a big difference between being risk-averse and risk-aware. And I think one of the biggest challenges for retail investors is to understand risk. Because in many cases, they would choose between a share like Remgro and then Renogen because they believe that maybe, you know, it's equity, it carries the same risk and it doesn't. Absolutely. And I would say if you're a retail investor, you really need to take advice. But the most important thing to understand is that if you are going to be invested in the stock market in shares, that these things move up and down and they're volatile. And invariably, when you need some cash, that share or those shares are going to be down. It's just Murphy's law, isn't it? And so if you, you know, maybe understand that you need to spread your investments across a diversified portfolio of risk. So some money markets, some kind of balanced fund, and then some equity portfolio. And like me, I think most people just go to a financial advisor and say, okay, I need to, uh, an RA, please, or pension fund or in my day, an endowment. We don't do those anymore, really. 
And then they don't actually look at what's in it. And then the financial advisor generally, generally, a terrible generalization to make, but they see how old you are when you're going to retire and then decide on your portfolio. And there's not enough analysis of, well, maybe I need more in less risky or maybe I need more risky investments. And I guess the big debate around that as well that's going on at the moment is that so many people come close to retirement with not enough money, but because they're on a uh, what they call the kind of age-related investment or pension fund, they get put into lower risk, lower return normally portfolios, and then they actually just don't meet their pension requirements at the end of the day. And, and maybe we should think about explaining to people that, you know, you, you need to be taking a little bit more risk because you haven't got to where you want to be, but understand that you need to be in it for a longer period because risk, that's real personal risk, right, in investments. And, and that kind of risk is mitigated by longevity or the ability to be in the market for longer when the market is as volatile as it currently is, for example. But that is the case for saving towards retirement. And and I think it's a recurring theme. You know, in, in many ways, you can just translate what you've just said and say, listen, you need to be compliant to Regulation 28, but have as much of your money in shares as possible, even when you approach retirement, because longevity will mean that you still have a long-term investment horizon even when you retire. But do you think people follow the same methodology or strategy when they invest with after-tax money, when they want to build a wealth portfolio in addition to formal retirement savings? Oh, absolutely not. No, I think if you have, and so few of us do, discretionary investments, after-tax money, I think you tend to be more of a risk taker. And when I say risk taker, you're prepared to go into the stock market. You know, you wouldn't put your discretionary portfolio into a money market fund, generally speaking. And what you should do is really divide it up a little bit. So no, the methodology, I guess, or the philosophy then is very different. So you asked me about kind of work and personal, and even then it's very different. So how I invest or how I think about investing at work when I've got been given a mandate by, say, a pension fund client or big clients is not how I think about it for myself because investments are very personal. And so you do have to sit down and go, what do I personally need? Where am I in my life journey and what is this money for? And then build a portfolio. And not forget that diversification is so absolutely important. So tell us, what do you think was your best investment ever? <laughs> Rick, I, I think it would be obtuse of me not to say Cartesian capital, but, you know, there's, there's a number of them. And I guess it's such an interesting question because that really is my best investment. Well, I hope it's going to be put that way. Petri Reeling, I said last week, he said his best investment ever was to, to start his own business. And it's not only from a financial perspective, it's also, it was also from a mindset perspective. Oh, I didn't. I, I know, Petri, I didn't hear him say that. That's excellent. Yeah, I have, absolutely agree with him. But then from a trading perspective, I actually have a trade that I, I, you've just reminded me of, which was actually the same trade, my best and worst at the same time. So I was working at the African Development Bank, kind of post-global financial crisis. And I was managing the arbitrage book. And it was about the time that the U.S. got downgraded by credit rating agencies. I don't know if you remember. It was a big story. It was 
around about 2010, 2011. So what I could do as the African Development Bank investment manager was issue AAA rated status because the African Bank maintained its AAA rated status and then buy US government bonds at AA and get a nice little yield pickup. <laughs> and then, of course, because I didn't want it in US dollars, I then converted it into Swiss francs because the dollar was weakening or in a weakening trend at the time. And everyone was looking for safe haven assets in Switzerland, so meaning that the franc got stronger and stronger. Nice, simple trade with not such a nice ending because at some stage, and I again, I can't remember the exact date. It would have been late 2011, early 2012. The Swiss National Bank decided that even though their currency was free-floating, because everyone was investing in it, it was too strong for their economy. So they put a cap on it, and suddenly everyone was selling out of their Swiss francs. I'm sitting on Swiss francs as they're weakening. So it didn't really kind of my best trade very quickly became almost one of my worst trades. Can you give us a, a peek into your personal investment portfolio? Which shares uh, do you hold currently? Right. So I am very particular about kind of, you know, personal trading portfolios because we can't, we're not allowed. And again, probably my banking background is I don't want people to front run our clients or to do that sort of thing. So I actually just invest in the Cartesian portfolios, which seems a bit boring. But so we've got a number of kind of money market and equity portfolios. And then so in the equity portfolio now, I would be remiss if I didn't say we had a few Tungela shares, right? Every South African asset manager <laughs> talks about their Tungela holding. But what's happened with that, obviously, is as the share has run, we keep reducing our exposure. So I've got kind of less and less as time has gone by. So kind of great to start, but maybe I should have kept them. And then at this stage of the game, we're very much in the kind of what we think are the growth shares, the strong blue chips, if you want to. And then I guess the one that I'm really interested is African Rainbow Capital at the moment, because I think there's a value unlock. And I know that investment holding companies on the South African Stock Exchange or the JSE, the investment holding companies do trade at a discount. And it's whether or not there's a catalyst for that share to rally to be the same as it's now, for example, is always the question, you know, which is why so many of them are delisting. But I'm kind of hoping that people are going to look at African Rainbow Capital and say, yeah, no, this should be worth a lot more. It's really hurt me in the last month, if I'm honest. If, if I remember correctly, the discount of ARC is around between 30 and 40 percent. It's significant. Correct. That's right. Yes. And I'm hoping for people to realize that and start closing that discount. Do you like the NASPAS process discount story and the aggressive buyback of shares they are now busy with to try and close that discount? I like the aggressive buyback because they're trying to do something about it. But I've long time lost faith in the fact that that discount will narrow. So we do have a tiny position, but it's more just in kind of as a hedge. In fact, that their share buyback program will work to see the discount narrow and the share to rally. It's not that I'm a firm believer in the share have to hold it kind of story. Just lastly, what advice would you have for a normal Joe Soap retail investor? I would say that, you know, you've got experts in the field. So kind of invest in share or, or funds or ETFs or unit trusts where there are professionals managing your money. But I also know that it is very exciting to own and buy your own shares. And if that is the case, then I would say do it because it really is a great way to learn about shares. Kind of as I did, you know, I had to learn 
almost the hard way and in retrospect of when I had actually invested. And so I would say, get a financial planner for sure. That's important. Absolutely. And I know that people think financial planners are expensive and I don't have enough money, so I can't go to one. It's not the case. So go to a financial planner. They only charge a percentage of the money you invest and they do all the work for you. So that's great. And once you've done that, definitely I would say get together a little share portfolio and just be conscious that this is money that potentially is not your life savings or your pension fund. And so when the share price goes up, share prices, I should say, go up and down, that you can understand and learn what it's like to be invested in the stock market and in shares. It's such a valuable lesson to understand volatility and personal risk. I think, of course, you need to have your retirement planning. You need to put that in the hands of a professional But the moment you buy your first share, you start a a learning journey. And I think that can benefit you on so many different levels because you start to learn again. And and when you see your own money go up or down, especially if it's discretionary uh, money, you start to read and read and read and read. and, And that educational part of it, I think, is sometimes understated. I agree with you, Rake. But one of the problems, of course, in South Africa is that not enough people are doing it, right? So you and I have fallen in love with the stock market, clearly. My other piece of advice for those who are not like us would be just start. Like, I I know you think you need a lot of money to invest in the stock market, but you actually don't. There are lots of platforms that allow you to invest with very little money. Just do it. And, And that kind of the discipline of investing and learning is an ultimately important one, as you have said. Anthea, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your insights with us. Thank you very much, Ray. That was Anthea Gardner. She's the managing partner at Cartesian Capital. Show me the money. That was the Money Web. Be a better investor podcast with Ray for Kneecap. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the MoneyWeb podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.